Uh, Hebrews 11, we're going to continue our series, which we've called So Much Better. So it's a, a look at Hebrews, and particularly, we've been just working our way week by week, we've been working our way through this book of the Bible. You know, when doctors and um, even Rachel mentioned earlier medical care, a lot of times when doctors want to see what's happening inside your body, they do some diagnostic imaging. So whether that's um, whether that's a CT scan or whether that's an MRI, whether that's an X-ray, they're trying to get below the surface and see what's going on. And the Bible does that, doesn't it? As we read God's Word, it gets below what we might present on the surface and kind of gets us down into what is going on in our hearts and what is going on into our lives. And one of the ways Hebrews 11 does that is actually by giving us characters to look at, particular names, and sometimes not even names, sometimes they're just stories but we get names and we get stories, and in some ways, the diagnostic imaging works like this. We get to see what faith looks like. So we've been walking through, this is our third week in Hebrews 11, we've been walking through different stories, different scenes in the Old Testament, and kind of what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this is what faith looks like. This is what it looks like when faith shows up in an event, in a circumstance, in a situation, in a season of life. This is what faith looks like. And God's Word can do some good work in our hearts. Evan, last week, spent some time looking at, like, what does faith look like in the life of Abraham in the Old Testament? And so we kind of pick up from that. Again, do you have Hebrews 11? If you do, let's look at verse 20. So we're going to look at Abraham's son named Isaac. We're just going to spend a little bit of time as we kind of lean into taking the Lord's Supper together in just a moment. We're going to take some time to look at what does faith look like? So verse 20, it says this, by faith, Isaac, which is Abraham's son, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. So those are his sons. And then verse 21 says this, by faith, Jacob When he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, so he's blessing his grandsons, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones, his remains. This passage points us in a very specific direction, just those verses, and that's loaded with a ton of Bible stories, but it's pointing us in this direction. Faith is going to involve you seeing beyond the limits of your own life. Faith will involve you seeing beyond just however many days the Lord gives you in this life. It may be a decade longer. It may be five decades longer. Faith involves you seeing beyond that. Actually, I read that. You read that again and again. So you see it in the life of Isaac. So there comes a time when Isaac dies, when he passes from this life. But, but here, notice what he says. Because Isaac trusted God, he blessed Jacob and Esau who would outlive him. He pronounced a blessing on them. This blessing wasn't just random. This blessing was actually blessing them, taking God to account. God had made these promises and he is... He is by his words saying, God, as you have blessed my father Abraham, as you have blessed me, now pour that blessing on my sons. 
Isaac won't live to see the full dimensions of those blessings. But faith involves seeing beyond the limit of your life. We see it in Isaac's life, and then we see it in Jacob's life. It says even explicitly in verse 21, it says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, so he knows his time is going to be done. And he sees beyond his few days on this planet. And he also blesses. It's interesting. Do you see who he blessed? He blessed his grandsons, blessed Joseph's sons, which this is one of those passages where it just mentions these names and you're like, man, it takes a dozen chapters to unpack these stories in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And here you just have one verse mentioning it. So there's so much loaded in. But, but one thing we know from the story of Joseph is that Jacob at one point in time thought his son Joseph was dead. Forget about grandchildren. He never thought he would see his son again. And now it says, did you notice it says he was worshiping as he was leaning upon his staff. That staff was a picture, that, that stick was a picture of him just walking everywhere and he walked and carried this staff and now he leans over on the staff pronouncing God's blessing, family blessings on grandchildren he never thought he would see. He is seeing something beyond just his days are coming to an end, but then he's pronouncing blessings on his grandchildren. Joseph also, did you see that in verse 22? Something goes beyond the limit of his life. Because Joseph trusted God, he speaks about it even in a different way. He speaks about the Israelites when they're going to exit the land of Egypt. And he, he says, when you leave Egypt, you don't even leave my remains here. You take them with you to the promised land. That's where I belong. He is seeing something. Again, the Bible record is going to tell us he is seeing something. There is something about faith that's driving him to something that's not going to happen for hundreds of years, a couple hundred, 300 years down the road. And he is saying, when we all, when this family of Abraham leaves, you're taking my remains and you're going to put them in the promised land because that's where I belong. This is faith that sees beyond just a few days here. Do we have that faith, that faith that involves seeing beyond the limit of your own life? You could hear this as like, this is kind of a talk about legacy. And I guess there's some dimensions of that. Leaving a legacy can be a powerful motivator, can actually be a good motivator. But I think this is actually even talking about something maybe a little bit further or different from legacy. Because you know what? I could want to leave a legacy where people remember me and remember who I am, and remember what I did, but I see with Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. They actually are pointing to God and his promises. They're bringing his blessings on the life of people that would follow him. There's something pretty powerful at work. When I see people doing this, it's powerful when people see beyond their years here. I remember um, not too long ago talking to a person at church, and they had retired and probably more of their life is behind them than is ahead of them. And I asked them if they would serve in a certain capacity at our church. I asked them if they would pray about that. And their desire was like, Curtis, I don't know how many more years I have, but the Lord is just pressing on my heart that I, I need to use those to the best of my ability so that there are things that just outlive me. And so this person's desire was to serve here and to serve their children and their grandchildren, their whole family, serve brothers and sisters in Christ, do whatever they can to be poured out because they know we only have a few, 
only have a limited number of days. Nobody in here knows exactly how many we have. But I love the heart of that. It's why even I, I talk to people who have, like even in financial planning, long after they're gone, they're wanting to support, they're, they're planning their estate to be used for God's purposes. This takes faith, and it takes God's grace to see beyond the limit of your own life. You may go, like, well, Curtis, I could see like faith involving seeing beyond the limit of my life. If you had like a good life to live, like if you had done a lot of good things and you had accomplished a lot of good things, then you want some things to outlive you. But some of you, as we sit right here today, you look back at your life and you go, my life is not so squeaky clean. Like I'm not sure what I would pass on. Maybe you look at your life as one that is filled with grief and pain and hurt and dysfunction and abuse and hardship. And because life has just seemed to deal you hardship after hardship, you go, I'm not sure there's much I could pass on. I, I'm not sure like, that, that faith kind of works for me in this way. And if you're tempted to believe that for a moment... Hebrews 11 is going to tell you, remember who we're talking about here. If you want to talk about family dysfunction and hurt and grief and pain, there's Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And how, I mean, frankly, how awful some of those stories are. How painful the circumstances are. What kind of abuse was endured in this family? And yet, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph get to a place where, despite all the all the mess that their lives are, they still can see beyond the limits of their lives and they, they live accordingly. Faith involves seeing beyond the limit right here. So kind of as the diagnostic test goes, like, or do we have that kind of faith? Because that's what faith involves. It involves seeing, even if, even if you're not going to meet Jesus for another six decades, are you living in such a way to go, my life here is not all that matters. I love this passage pointing us in that direction. Let's keep reading verse 23. So you're introduced kind of to another series of stories kind of contained in Moses. So a lot of these play out in Exodus and even into Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. It says, by faith when, by faith Moses in verse 23, but this actually doesn't even start with Moses. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And you have to know a lot of background here, and, and we don't have time to get into all these stories, but just take another look at how faith manifested itself. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was all grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach, reproach of Christ as greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I love that line, seeing him who is invisible. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute 
did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. It's a series of stories. And again, these are chapters. All books of the Bible are, are dedicated to telling these stories, but by faith, by faith, by faith. What does faith involve? If I could put it this way, faith involves like a serious cost-benefit analysis. I see in the story of Moses, his parents, and Moses, and Moses leading the people out of, out of Egypt, and I see in Joshua and in the story of Jericho and Rahab, there is some real cost-benefit analysis. Do you know this term? So cost-benefit. So you, it's kind of that process where you're looking at what is an action or a decision? What, is, what are the benefits of that versus like the minus the costs associated with that? And, and what Scripture does, it points us to like, you and I are going, going to have to do this. What really... What really is the benefit we're pursuing and what cost are we willing to endure? And we get a glimpse into the life of Moses' parents and Moses and the people of Israel and Joshua and Rahab. Some cost-benefit analysis in verse 23. I mean, Moses' parents have to determine, are, are we willing to run the risk of losing our life because we're defying the king's order? But we want to spare this son that we think God has shown grace on. Cost-benefit, what matters to them? Their safety or their desire to spare life? Cost-benefit in verse 24, Moses, it says he refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It, it tells us he refuses all the position and power that would be accompanied by being in the Pharaoh's family. He turns like he associates that benefit and goes like, I actually want a different kind of benefit and I'm willing to pay the cost of losing all of that because there's something that matters more to me. In verse 25, he's mistreated for a short time because he knows I could live well for a season, but there's something that matters more to me than just getting everything I want right now. I mean, do you see the cost benefit? I mean, this is, this is not easy. This is much easier preaching and teaching than it is living when you've got to say, I don't care if it costs me. There are things that matter more to me than that particular pleasure, that particular thing going easy in my life. Verse 26, it seems like he's doing the mental math that if people look down on him for the sake of God's anointed one, Christ, that's more valuable. More valuable to him is God's opinion and estimation of him. So he keeps thinking about the reward that comes in the future. And it's as if Moses in verse 27 sees the invisible God and he goes, I'm not going to change course. I'm going to continue on. I'm not going to turn back. We do this cost-benefit analysis all the time. Do, do, do I want to buy this? Do I want to do this house remodel? Do I want to go down the road of this hobby? And what's it going to cost me? What are the benefits attached? We do this all the time. And yet what I'm saying is spiritually, you've got to do some cost-benefit analysis too. It's a step of faith. God gives us grace. God gives us grace at times to see the cost and the benefit. It's why some of you this week will willingly take the cost of waking up a few minutes early and willingly go through the discipline of praying and being involved, leaning into community when you could just mind your own business, when you could just live on an island, but you will lean into 
Lean into other believers. You will do that because you recognize the cost of the extra time getting up early or staying up late to, to get into God's Word and to have that feed you and to talk to God in relationship. That matters. That There's a benefit you're pursuing, and you're going to say, I don't care about the cost because the benefit of being close with the Lord is worth it. It's why some in this room are going to choose regularly to say yes to helping and serving the marginalized. You're going to lean into hard situations where someone might be uh, an orphan, someone might be disabled, someone might be an immigrant, and you're going to walk with them and stand with them and love them and be there for them because there's a benefit and you don't mind paying the cost. It's why some in this room even this week, we'll say, we'll say no to having sex with whoever you want because there's a benefit because, because Jesus has said, blessed are the pure in heart for those are the ones who are going to see God. You're going to live, live with sexual integrity and purity. You're going, to fight, you're going to fight that battle because there's a benefit that, that some pleasure for a moment or a season just can't even compare to knowing God and walking with him in purity. It's why, why some will show up again and again, working day in and day out, even in hard spots, but showing love to their coworkers and, and praying and loving and being there for them because you see it more than just a paycheck. You see it as something going on. By faith, you're making these decisions. You're not living to just be pretty comfortable. By faith, some of you will make the decision maybe even this week, maybe even this month, not to nurse a grudge or, or feel like everybody is out to just mess you over all the time. But you're going to let that go and forgive. And you're going to do the hard work of forgiveness and moving on and trying to work through things because you know you've been forgiven and you know if you've been forgiven, you can forgive those who have sinned against you. Like none of this is easy. It takes cost and benefit analysis. It's why some of you are... As a parent, you are leaning into some pretty hard things and you're, you're recognizing like the way, the way we do our family, the way we make decisions for our family, we have different priorities than all the world around us. We have different things that matter to us. And that means at times like we don't fit in a mainstream. We don't fit in like everybody else seems to be accepted and we feel like we're doing things differently. But, but we're doing those because our family is not our own. We're the Lord's and that's just what we do. And you have to pay some of the cost of that. But the reward is, it's for me and my house. We're going to pursue the Lord. I see that again and again. And by the way, it's just God's grace to us that even when we get totally, totally out of whack with the cost benefit and we thought something was like really valuable and then it blows up in our face and it turns out to be really costly and no rewards, we find ourselves just like the son in the prodigal son story, coming back to the Lord going, I, Father, I thought this is what I really wanted. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been on like the wrong side of cost benefit and you thought that's what you wanted and you go, I realized, Father, that I got this all wrong. And on the other side of that, what do you have but a welcoming father saying, come back, come back. You're welcome here. Grace extends. Verse 32 begins to like, I don't know, the pace seems to pick up. So you'll hear it like, verse 32, it's like, what more shall I say? I mean, time would fa fail me to tell of Gideon and, and 
uh, Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets. Time would fail me to tell of like those who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Verse 34, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. I mean, it's like all these things. We, we could talk about this. We could talk about this. We could talk about this. And then in verse 35, it takes a different turn, doesn't it? So we could talk about all the monumental successes. And in verse 35, we could also talk about some who were tortured. Some who refused to accept release so that they might rise again to better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of this earth. All that, I mean, you've got these like monumental successes and this monumental pain, and it's like, what do we do with it? I think one thing, if we kind of run the diagnostic imaging, what we will determine is that faith involves situations that don't always feel and look like a win. Kind of use that terminology like a win. We know what a win is. Like when the grades are good, when family's happy, when we're making money, when things seem to be in, in a good spot, we know what a win is. But faith involves situations that don't always feel like, even when they go well, sometimes it doesn't feel like, man, that feels like when sometimes I imagine Daniel walking out of the lion's den, there was a, a huge amount of relief and also a huge amount of trauma that he had just experienced. And there's sometimes that even when things resolve, they still feel hard and they still feel like it's going to take me a while to think through that, much less when the circumstances are painful. When some things just don't resolve, when there's no bigger picture you can grasp. I read the verses quickly, and maybe I shouldn't have. Because when you are on walking through trials, and it's like, you know, that story didn't have a everybody lived happily ever after kind of ending. Or it certainly hasn't as of right here today. And you, you felt like you were following the path, doing what's right, and it doesn't feel like it resolved in a win. And we're reading stories and getting insight into people that met the end of their life with things not being quite resolved, humanly speaking. It's just sobering. It's sobering. As much as I want everything to go well for every single individual here, as much as I would like all family stress to be resolved, as much as I would like all financial stress to be relieved, as much as I would like everybody's life to just be perfect and, and really dialed in to where you feel fulfilled and every bit of work, like it all makes sense. You all have, a, have this grand view. As much as I would like that this afternoon, this tells me faith's going to involve situations that don't always feel that way. And if you're doubting and if you're struggling... God may be growing your faith. And when you're crushed but still trusting, like that's faith. That's faith there. And I read words like, of whom the world was not worthy. And my guess is if we had interviewed them and said, do you feel like things are going wonderful? Do you feel like God's really happy with everything? Do you feel like all the blessings of God are yours? I'm guessing 
the answer would have been, I don't see it. I don't know. I don't understand. But I am believing. I am believing. Yeah, we've tried to like do some diagnostic, like, okay, so faith means seeing beyond the limits of our own lives. Faith involves like this serious cost-benefit analysis. What, what does matter to you? You've got to answer that question. What is the reward? Is it knowing Christ? Is it being found in Him? Does that mean everything? So you're willing to endure cost because that means everything to you. Faith involves situations that don't always feel or look like a win. And the passage closes like that because in verse 39 it says, and all these, so everybody that's been listed, all these Old Testament names and stories, all these, though commended through their faith, they didn't receive what was promised. They, it's not as if they kind of got to the finish line. Why? Because God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect or complete. We could talk a while of what those verses mean, but it does give us a picture of, okay, there were these believers in the Old Testament and as much as they trusted God, they didn't, like, they didn't see the finish line. They didn't even see Jesus Christ on the cross and risen from the dead. They never saw that. But God had this plan, and they were trusting in a God who had a plan to actually bring the Old Testament believers and those of us who have trusted in Jesus this side of the cross and to wrap us together, saying, you know who we are? We are the people of God who are fully relying on Jesus Christ, bringing that together and saying, that is completion. Those who waited on Jesus to come, those who are trusting that Jesus did what he needed to do on the cross and are waiting on him to set this world back to the way God designed it to be. I think this leads us right into our communion time because we take bread and juice today and we are taking it by faith. We're taking it by faith saying we believe in what was done by our Lord and Savior 2,000 years ago, we believe that what he did on the cross, what he did in rising from the dead, what he did in rising from the dead and becoming the Lord and the Messiah, like that means something to us. It means he has the right to say, I want your life. You are mine. I paid the price for you. But it also means we take this in recognition. This is just a taste. This is just a sign. It's pointing us. We, we know this earth is not all there is. We know there's new heavens and new earth where we will see, where we'll see Jesus. Not, at that point, not, not by faith, but by sight. And we'll enjoy, like, what, what will communion be like with him there? It won't just be a taste. It won't be a sign. It'll be reality. It'll be the reality we've waited for. So with that in mind, 1 Corinthians, when it instructs us to have the Lord's Supper together, it does tell us to examine ourselves. So maybe this passage has a way of diagnosing where your faith is. And maybe your faith, God will use this passage and even us taking the Lord's Supper together in a moment to actually grow your faith, to renew your faith. Maybe a moment of just like quiet before the Lord, before we take it, examining ourselves praying to him. Maybe that's what's needed here. So can we do that? Can we take some time to pray? So I invite all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, 
all those who are people of faith. And by that, I don't just mean optimistic people. I mean people that have trusted in Jesus Christ, what he did for us 2,000 years ago. The body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us. I invite you to take and remember. So we have the symbol of bread. Remember Christ's body was broken for us. And he said, take the bread and do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of him, we take it. We're also given a sign, a pointer of a cup, which Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. To do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of him, we take it. As you eat this bread, as you drink this cup, you're proclaiming, we're, we're saying we believe we're part of this family. Can I invite the worship team to come up? Say, come up, I would like to pray for us. Father, thank you for the reminder, the tangible reminders to strengthen and nourish and help our faith where it's grown weak, uh, where it came in minimal. I pray that uh, it'll be strengthened, that our hope will not be in ourselves, but we will be reminded of all the promises that you've made and all those promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So we ask all this in his name. Amen.